Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this podcast, a recording from Melancholia, a two-day intensive multidisciplinary seminar devoted to exploring clinical, theoretical and artistic approaches to the topic of melancholia. The event took place in the National Museum of Ireland, Decorative Arts and History, on Friday 7th and Saturday 8th of November 2014. The event was organised and funded by the UCD Humanities Institute and co-sponsored by the Irish Institute of Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy, the Irish Forum for Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy, the Association for Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy in Ireland and the Centre for Gender, Culture and Identities at University College Dublin. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this podcast, a recording of Session 1, What is Melancholia? The session was chaired by Dr. Noreen Giffney, psychoanalytic psychotherapist in Dublin and lecturer in psychoanalytic studies at Birkbeck, University of London. Okay, so we asked all of you to read uh, Sigmund Freud's Morning and Melancholia piece in advance. And the reason we did that is we wanted uh, people, everybody to have read one text for this session. So some people like to refer to the text when they're making a point. Some people prefer to just talk uh, from uh, whatever their view is. So it's up to you, really. I'm going to have the text in front of myself, and I'm I'm sure the uh, respondents are going to have it there as well. Um, So it's up to you how you engage with it. We also suggested some recommended readings. Um, So the idea of that was that it was up to you whether you wanted to read some of those. And then also I'm aware that people read further afield as well. So please do bring in other ideas and uh, thoughts and uh, on any of those readings, criticisms and so on, uh, so that we can engage with them. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to introduce each of the speakers and after I introduce them, they're going to each speak for five minutes each and when they have finished speaking, I'm just going to open the discussion up to everybody here in the room. So it's up to you if you want to maybe engage with one particular speaker, but the idea is not really a questions and answers format, it's more that their thoughts get us started and then we move forward with uh, whatever comes up for all of us. Um, Okay, so um, uh, the first person who will be speaking will be Olga Cox Cameron, who's sitting there in the blue. And Olga is a psychoanalyst in private practice in Dublin. She's also a clinical supervisor and she's a lecturer at St. Vincent's University Hospital. Olga has lectured and published extensively in uh, national and international journals on psychoanalysis and psychoanalysis and literature. And Olga is one of the, Olga is the founder of the Irish Psychoanalysis Analytic Film Festival, which uh, is going to be in its seventh year next year. So if anybody's interested in hearing more about the Irish Psychoanalytic Film Festival, do approach Alga during the break because um, you just advertised the programme a couple of weeks ago. Um, So that should be up online now. Yeah. Um, After Olga, we'll have Isabel Nolan, who's sitting here beside me. Isabel is an artist based in Dublin, and Isabel has uh, exhibited extensively in Ireland and uh, abroad. Uh, She recently had an exhibition in IMA, which many of you might have seen, The Weakened Eye of Day. And interesting as part of that, I didn't get to it, but you had a screening of Lars von Trier's uh, Melancholia uh, as one of the events surrounding that exhibition as well. Um, uh, Isabel was uh, one of seven artists uh, in 2005 who represented Ireland at the Venice 
Viganale, and she's represented by Curlin Gallery in Dublin, and she is also a visiting lecturer at the National College of Art and Design in Dublin. After Isabel, we'll have uh, Mary Pyle, who's sitting here in the red. And Mary is a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, a trained group analyst, and a clinical supervisor uh, in private practice in Dublin. She is one of the founders of the Irish Forum for Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy, which is one of the accrediting bodies for psychoanalytic practitioners in Ireland. And she is also one of the founders of the Irish Institute of Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy, which trains uh, psychoanalytic psychotherapists in Ireland as well. And she's currently the chairperson of that, so we're very happy that she's here with us today. And Mary as well is uh, currently doing a PhD in the School of English at Trinity College Dublin on the topic of Harry Potter and the unconscious dimension. So I have a feeling that we're going to hear about that uh, soon, uh, in a few moments. And uh, the last speaker on this panel will be uh, Moina Sullivan, who is a lecturer in the School of English at uh, Maynooth University. And uh, Moina has published extensively on various different areas, Irish studies, uh, cultural criticism, postmodernism, uh, poetry, literary theory, gender and sexuality. And Moyne is currently writing a book on, entitled, she tells me at the moment, working title of Mother and Child. And she is the director of the MA in Gender, Sexuality and Culture at Maynooth University. So I'm going to hand you over to each speaker now. So Olga. Okay, good morning everybody. Of all the things, of all the, the work that Freud did and all the papers that he wrote, it's extraordinary that this one kind of continues to garner attention, that we continue to, to read it again, to puzzle, to puzzle over it and to talk about it. And I think that's possibly because Freud fails almost all the way through to answer the questions that he sets out to, to answer. But that it's a, a particular kind of failure, a failure made up of near hits and near misses. So therefore we're, we're drawn in, we're you know, partly in agreement and then we balk and, and we go back again and we decide either we'll succumb or we're going to think uh, that's wrong. So um, in the, one of the, the major near hits is the, the actual linking with mourning. Uh, he is right to see that melancholia, like mourning and like psychosis, is a major catastrophe in, uh, which affects one, the, both one's relationship to oneself and one's relationship to the world. Ordinarily, that's something that we completely take for granted and only notice it's distur that, that there must be something that keeps all that in place. We only notice that when it starts to fall apart. And the, the Kleinians here will remember a very poignant cameo from Melanie Klein, Klein's work when she talks about a couple of days after her son was killed in a skiing accident. She kind of thought she could carry on and went out to tea with friends. And the walls of the tea room started collapsing in on, on top of her. So something that you completely take for granted, your place in the world and the place of the world, can actually get disturbed to such an extent that you're incapacitated. So that's, you know, it, uh, that in a sense, melancholia, like psychosis and like mourning, if you like, ask us to think about what is that enigmatic something that allows us to be a self and allows the world to function at some kind of manageable distance. 
We know from literature, indeed, how well that collapses, how absolutely that collapses in mourning. We have the great Irish love song, Don the Logue, you know, where she says, you took the sun from me, you took the moon from me, and you almost took God himself from me. So all, all gone, a self gone and a world gone. And if you read the Russell Greek paper, he, talks, uh, he quotes a poem from Auden, which says, you know, the sun is of no use now. Uh, you know, nothing is of any use. The world somehow has, has faded away. So in that sense, so mourning collapses it, psychosis collapses it. And those of you who will have dipped into poor old Schreber's memoirs, so Freud wrote his major psychotic cases on Schreber. If you remember Schreber talking about I read my own obituary in the paper as the stars fell from the sky. It's a wonderful uh, example of the world being gone from you and yourself being gone from you. So both mourning and psychosis are, are, are very clear examples of that relationship being absolutely collapsed. So the, and there is some kind of similarity in Freud's near-miss alignment, but... As both Russell Grieg and Thomas Ogden point out, where Freud lines the two up, he makes one exception. And the one exception is the ferocity of the self-hate. And, of course, as they both say, that is the major difference. You know, that is where they absolutely part company. There is no point in lining them up if you put this major obstacle in. The ferocity of the, of the hate, what Freud calls, if, he, if I can quote, the lowering of the self-regarding feelings to such a degree that, that it finds utterances in self-reproaches and self-revilings. So this is the salient feature, I think, of melancholia. A ferocity which is absolutely unbridled and which I think would make us pause at Ogden's phrase uh, and make me uh, ask, is it perhaps a disease of narcissism? <laughs> because it's not just about self-love switching to self-hate, which in itself is something that we can ask many questions about, but it's the level of virulence involved. That's the really salient feature here. For most of us, you know, in our narcissistic way, we are narcissistic, but our narcissism is relatively indiscernible. You know, you get, the odd, you get the odd person where everyone says, it's all about me, it's all about me. But for most of us, we are narcissistic in such a way that it actually doesn't disturb our relationships. Our narcissism is active, but somehow regulated. Here you have a completely out-of-control hate and virulence. And in fact, for most of us, our active, regulated narcissism is probably the mainspring which fuels our interest in others and in the world. Lacan has a very effective pun on the position of the desiring subject when he calls that position inter-essay, which is both I'm interested and I'm also situated somewhere between. So I am not devoured by, uh, by passion in the same way as the melancholic is, but also, of course, the melancholic also devours and feeds on and is locked onto this ferocity. It's not just that he or she is devoured by it, but that he or she devours it also. And you get that again in literature way back before Freud. In Shakespeare, in As You Like It, when Jacques, the melancholic, says, I suck on melancholy as a weasel sucks on eggs. So you have this, I draw my strength, I draw everything I have from it. 
When it's at that level, and we will discuss it more, I actually think that it is a completely intractable condition. It makes me think of what Freud wrote about transference love, um, that at a certain pitch, you know, Freud anticipating Leonard Cohen said, there ain't no cure for love. At a certain pitch, when love is completely intractable, and similarly, at a certain pitch, that hate is completely intractable. And I would say, in 26 years of practice, I have found it the most um, puzzling and intractable position um, that I've encountered. The other thing that I just wanted to say to to conclude, uh, the other point I wanted to make question is, is this something, is melancholia endemic to subjectivity, uh, as in, we are all, you know, we are all, being is a want to be. So we are all caught up in narratives of heroism and in narratives of I can, I can, I can sustain. I think of Eleanor Scarry here talking about victims of torture. There are positions where heroism is absolutely outlawed. And for this, again, clinically, I think the victims of sexual abuse are very often uh, devoured by melancholy for that reason. There is something, there are layers in human experience that are not sustainable, but if you can't sustain them, do you then collapse as a human being? I think that's the dilemma for, for the victim of sexual abuse. And I think I'm going to conclude with Freud, uh, Joyce talks about the big words that make us so unhappy. So all of these ideals. But what I'm saying is, while that's cultural, I think it's also endemic to how one is a subject. We are always a want-to-be, and a want-to-be more than we are. Okay, so they're the questions that I throw out there. Thanks, Olga. Uh, Isabel? Um, Just before I begin, I had to make a handout, because we have no projection, and um, given the time constraints, I don't think I'm going to have time to refer to the second image. And also, yeah, I kind of... The, the Freud text, I didn't find it a very useful way to think about melancholia, so my response isn't directed at it. But I'm talking about, well, it's indirectly directed at it. So how art fails to understand melancholia in a valuable way. Melancholy is an assault on our aesthetic and conceptual faculties. The world is shit, we are shit, language is voided of its power to communicate meaningfully. Life is drained, pointless and full of nothing. In this situation here, to try and translate melancholy into speech is near impossible. It resists speech, the invocation of inadequate words and clumsy images. They fail. It also resists understanding. We can speculate, study, make models, metaphors, and perhaps even cure it, but the power of melancholy may be that it always exceeds our vocabularies and systems for generating understanding. Melancholy threatens our ideas because it does not see any meaning in them. I'm drawn to artworks that I find in equal parts incomprehensible and affecting, contrary artworks that somehow play with us and rebuff us. They enthrall, but they resist, and yet they also resist our overtures and make a kind of not unfriendly mockery of our desire to understand them. Sometimes they're generous and they invite us to imagine their beauty and their strangeness into the world, but I think nevertheless our frameworks are taxed and challenged by the effort to contain them under any other rubric than the mere conclusion that they are art. So the images here are of Mary Lieb's rug sculptures, and they were made with her torn-up bedclothes. I think they're incredibly beautiful, compelling and quite awkward arrangements and I made a whole body of work to actually try and think about them. So they're rugs that operate like rugs but they perversely refuse to function as rugs. They are uncertain, provisional but powerfully territorial objects. 
To imagine standing within such a figment of a rug is, I think, to become part of the strange assembly sorry, the strange assembly of these arcane shapes. And at its simplest, such a work makes us unusually aware of being aware and self-consciously conscious of where and how we stand. So in some ways, as an idea, I think melancholy, like as an idea, not as an experience, is reasonable. It makes sense to have a negative attitude to life. We are all alone. Humans are often contemptible, and life can be full of pain. The contemplation of melancholy, like meeting a certain type of affecting and unfathomable artwork, again makes me unusually aware of being aware and self-consciously conscious of where and how I stand in relation to the world of given meaning. So Lieb was a psychiatric patient in Heidelberg in 1894, so it's very easy to imagine all sorts of motives for her actions. But I'm not interested by her feelings or her intentions, and I think to see these objects as a piece of outsider art or as a symptom of her illness diminishes their power, and it kind of domesticates them, and it renders them only kind of partially meaningful. Um, Meaningful, but only within one framework, instead of allowing them to get on with the task of being aesthetically troubling, conceptually inexplicable and beautiful. The world does not recognise that we humans exist. We are from the non-existent point of view of the universe without meaning. Our existence is wholly contingent and we've assigned to ourselves this compelling task of building a meaningful experience from the ground up. But without the capacity to see the edges of our conceptual frameworks, our models and our fictions will perpetually break down. And this is fine and it's often fascinating and even very beautiful. And writing this, I started to wonder if perhaps melancholy is the necessary spectre that kind of patrols and even delineates the borders of our ideas. And if we keep it in our peripheral vision, its challenge to our kind of pattern-hungry brains and its resistance to meaningfulness will act as a kind of reality check. By acknowledging the dark, painful, absurd, melancholic heart or edge, whatever metaphor you prefer, of our existence, perhaps we can know the world in a way that is not instrumental, not enthralled to its wonder or a higher power, and in so doing, invent meanings for life in all its dirty and thrilling and contingent difficulty. I always ask, what is an artwork doing? And I wonder then, what does melancholy do? Melancholy destroys the world of meaning as we know it. It cannot be endured. It is the place where the absence of significance is certain to reside, and if you fall within its orbit, it will overwhelm and even destroy with its inevitable and natural meaningless. Did I run out of time? No, you haven't finished. But I'm done, it's okay. (laughs) I skipped loads of bits unnecessarily now, it turns out. Thank you, Isabel. Um, Mary? I'll begin with Freud. The poets and philosophers before me discovered the unconscious. What I discovered was the scientific method by which the unconscious can be studied. Freud's comment can be expanded to recognize that not only poets and philosophers, but also filmmakers, artists, and writers who came after him could also describe some of the manifestations of states of mind to which he gave his attention. One such writer is J.K. Rowling, whose chilling personification of depression is very close to Freud's depiction of melancholia. In her Harry Potter books, the essence of evil, Voldemort, whose name has implications of death wish, has recruited to his cause entities called Dementors. 
These tall, black, shrouded and cowled figures have no faces and little by way of visible body parts at all. But when they appear, the surrounding air becomes very cold and if they get hold of you, they will try to suck out your soul. Here is Harry's first encounter with a Dementor. Standing in the doorway, illuminated by the shivering flames in Lupin's hand, was a cloaked figure that towered to the ceiling. Its face was completely hidden beneath its hood. Harry's eyes darted downwards, and what he saw made his stomach contract. There was a hand protruding from the cloak, and it was glistening, greyish, slimy-looking and scabbed, like something dead that had decayed in water. It was visible only for a split second. As though the creature beneath the cloak sensed Harry's gaze, the hand was suddenly withdrawn into the folds of the black material. And then the thing beneath the hood, whatever it was, drew a long, slow, rattling breath, as though it was trying to suck something more than air from its surroundings. An intense cold swept over them all. Harry felt his own breath catch in his chest. The cold went deeper than his skin. It was inside his chest. It was inside his very heart. Harry's eyes rolled up into his head. He couldn't see. He was drowning in cold. There was a rushing in his ears as though of water. He was being dragged downwards, the roaring growing louder. Later, Professor Lupin describes the Dementors as being among the foulest creatures that walk this earth. They infest the darkest, filthiest places. They glory in decay and despair. They drain peace, hope and happiness out of the air around them. Get too near a Dementor and every good feeling, every happy memory will be sucked out of you. The last and worst weapon is the Dementor's kiss, when they clamp their jaws upon the mouth of the victim and suck out his soul. You can exist without your soul, you know, as long as your brain and heart are still working. But you have no sense of self anymore. You'll just exist. And your soul is gone forever, lost. Soul, spirit, libido, the ability to relate, to form attachments, to love, the ability to find joy and things to enjoy in life are missing a description which is very similar to Freud's depiction of melancholia, a profoundly painful dejection, cessation of interest in the outside world, loss of the capacity to love, inhibition of all activity. Rowling has spoken about her own how her own experience of clinical depression, which, as Thomas Ogden reminds us, is the modern term for melancholia, led to the creation of the Dementors, she is good at inventing graphic terms. The word dementor suggests an amalgam of demented and tormentor. But since mens means mind, it also has the suggestion of losing one's mind. Rowling recognises the fact that this stage is not confined to adults. She suggests that she herself experienced it at an early age. For those readers who have not had this experience, the Dementors will be no more than another kind of monster. But for others who have, both adults and children, it will have the ring of truth. Dementors can be banished, but only by means of a very difficult spell which involves thinking of a moment of intense happiness, remembered or imagined, a task which seems almost impossible in the circumstances. 
Similarly, the patient suffering from melancholia finds it almost impossible to remember anything good in his life. Rowling is not a psychoanalyst and does not attempt to explain the causes of melancholia nor to describe the condition from a clinical point of view. But as a storyteller, she not only depicts the feelings involved but creates a physical form which illustrates them. And in this multidisciplinary conference, there's a place for such a vivid image to join with the film and art installations. I would like to end with one more quotation from Rowling. Harry asks Dumbledore if what is happening is real or all in his head. Dumbledore replies, Of course it is happening inside your head, Harry, but why on earth should that mean that it is not real? Thank you, Mary. Moina? Thank you. I'd just like to start by extending my thanks to the organisers for the invitation to speak. And I'm going to think through some of the key points of distinction between mourning and melancholia by looking at a poem written by one of Ireland's most important poets, Ivan Boland. Boland's work has centred largely on the maternal and the feminine, and she has explored hidden vistas of life in the suburbs, in domestic intimacy and in mother-child relationships, taking what is often overlooked and certainly underread, and showing how full of drama and potency, symbolism and granularity such spaces and links are. As a poet, she has powerfully explored her relationship to form, to the body of Irish poetry in terms of inheritance, and to the limits of poetic traditions that construct women as muses and icons, as silent images in the making of masculine poet heroes. In terms of a specifically Irish tradition, her book, Object Lessons, was a series of essays that explored her evolution as a poet with a feminine sensibility in a masculine bardic tradition that constructed her and women as objects. A hallmark of her work has been to reclaim the female body, which had been constructed as an object of loss, standing in for Ireland, or of desire, again, standing in for Ireland, a a reclaimed Ireland. And to think about speaking from multiple um, experiences of women, giving voice to ordinary, constructed, prosaic, leaky, damaged, or even melancholic experiences. In the book, Her Own Image, she especially begins to explore how split-up feelings of object loss are carried by women in the form of sexual violence in the culture and in, in an iteration of melancholic affect. Freud writes that in Melancholia, we can see how in him, one part of the ego sets itself against the other, judges it critically, and as it were, takes it as its object. Boland takes this relationship of a critical judgment to the object, or at least a limiting judgment of it, and reworks it in an aesthetics that asks us to rethink object relations, the very psychoanalytical field that Thomas Ogden argues evolved from Freud's essay, Morning and Melancholia. Freud argues that one of the key aspects that distinguishes mourning from melancholia is the tendency towards self-hatred or punishment, and he writes that dissatisfaction with the ego on moral grounds is the most outstanding feature of melancholia. Noting that while they share a response to the loss of an object, there are important differences. Whereas mourning usually is triggered by a death, melancholia can be excited by a range of abandoning behaviours, even a perceived blow to the ego. 
More than that, um, they share great pain in disattachment of the libido from the loved objects, as well as withdrawal from reality. But there is that third aspect which um, Olga um, spoke about, which is the, the, the virulence towards the self, a profoundly painful dejection, a cessation of interest in the outside world, loss of the capacity to love, inhibition of all activity and a lowering of self-regarding feelings to the degree that finds utterance in self-reproaches and self-revilings and culminates in a delusional expectation of punishment. So I'd like to read the poem Anorexic um, and think about that expectation of punishment, self-reproaching and self-reviling. Anorexic by Ivan Boland. Flesh is heretic. My body is a witch. I am burning it. Yes, I am torching her curves and paps and wiles. They scorch in my self-denials. How she meshed my head in the half-truths of her fevers till I renounced milk and honey and the taste of lunch. I vomited her hungers. Now the bitch is burning. I am starved and curveless. I am skin and bone. She has learnt her lesson. Thin as a rib, I turn in sleep. My dreams probe a claustrophobia, a sensuous enclosure. How warm it was and wide, once by a warm drum once by the song of his breath in his sleeping side. Only a little more, only a few more days, sinless, foodless, I will slip back into him again as if I had never been away. Caged so, I will grow angular and holy, past pain, keeping his heart such company as will make me forget in a small space the fall into forked dark, into python needs, heaving to hips and breasts and lips and heat and sweat and fat and greed. And at the most obvious level, this enumerates the uh, return to the side of Adam and becoming a rib, a patriarchal uh, uh, shape, um, a phallic shape, um, and a body that is no longer female or reproductive. Um, and it enumerates the history of punishments that have been enacted against women's bodies in the name of God, the law, and morality, such as the burning of witches at the stake. It also embodies a melancholic relation of the ego to a split-off part, and female flesh itself becomes a site of a moral be be de depravity in this instance and comes to stand for the melancholic relationship where the ego can be treated as the object to the point of death. It also, as Freud um, says in Mourning and Melancholia, um, enumerates the refusal or the resistance of nourishment in the melancholic. And at that, I will leave it and uh, look forward to people's responses to the poem. Thank you. Thank you, Moina.